This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This edition of Film Spotting, culminating our Agnes Varda Marathon, is sponsored by MUBI, cult classic independent films from around the world. Everyday movies experts introduce you to a film they love, and you have a whole month to watch it. So there will always be 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. You can also use their mobile apps to download the films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners can try MUBI free for a month. Just go to MUBI.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It's another one of our bonus podcasts as we are wrapping up our Agnes Varda marathon with the sixth film, 2008's The Beaches of Agnes. This is coming out before our full episode this week where we will pay tribute to Jonathan Demi. We share our top five Jonathan Demi moments and rectify a blind spot. We talk about his 1986 film, Something Wild. We are going to devote this show, though, to Agnes Varda and not only talk about the beaches of Agnes, but share our awards, which we do at the conclusion of every marathon. Christopher Reese, in Lexington, Kentucky. He often takes issues with many things that we do here on the show, and rightfully so. We are far from perfect, but maybe we will make him a little bit happy by going with his suggested title for these Varda Awards. We are calling them the Cleos in honor of her film Cleo from 5 to 7, a movie that was not part of our marathon because we'd both seen it. We are big fans of that film, and it was the film that kind of put her on the map internationally, and that does come up in the Beaches of Agnes, Josh, because it's a film that is very much, unlike The Gleaners and I, which sort of artistically becomes a memoir, mm-hmm. even though it is ostensibly a film about the process of gleaning and all of these different pickers and people who live off the land and the waste of the land in France. This is very much about Agnes Varda and a look back through her career. And I was wondering, watching it, how effective this movie would be for someone 
who didn't go through the process we've just gone through over the past two or three months, where even though we only talked about six of her films and are still relative neophytes when it comes to her entire body of work, I feel like we've got a pretty solid foundation to appreciate something like this career retrospective and this personal retrospective. If you look at Roger Ebert's four-star review of this movie, though, he says, if you have not seen a single film by Agnes Varda, perhaps it is best if you start with The Beaches of Agnes. Hmm. He says, you don't need to know anything about her work. She has a way of never explaining very much and yet somehow making it all clear. She does this by not treating her life as a lesson in biography, but as the treasured memories of friends. Your thoughts on Ebert's comment, your thoughts on the film? I mean, that's an accurate description, but I I wonder if that wasn't an attempt to encourage people to go see The Beaches of Agnes, you know, and and not... uh, Which is reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just try to get butts in the seats, which I applaud him for because this is a really good film. And yes, it's distinct from the Gleaners and I in that if that was a rumination, became a rumination on her artistic process, this is very much what you said. It's a retrospective. It it looks at a lot of the films in her career and gives us some insights into those. Certainly, it's more rewarding if you've seen those films, that portion, when that happens in the Beaches of Agnes. But, you know, it's it's really – it's bits and pieces from her work but also her life. And what's interesting is that this is assembled by her, right? So it's how she is experienced and seen things. And yet at the same time, it's the opposite of a vanity project. Can you think of a less vain filmmaker? Maybe Jonathan Demme. Yeah. Interestingly. You mm-hmm. know, someone who's not as interested in pointing – the camera at themselves or at their work or at their process, yet somehow you get to know her through her film so well. Yeah, no, um, very fair. And we have already taped that Jonathan Demi episode. Yeah. And I almost pointed out and just held back from saying it that all the talk about Demi as such an empathic filmmaker, we had just got done Absolutely. saying that about Varda. There is a very clear connection between them in their approaches to cinema and just their appreciation for humanity. Yep, for other people. Yeah. And that's what and that's what the beaches of Agnes becomes. You know, she spends a lot of time talking to the the friends, family members, colleagues who have meant a lot to her and her career. So the you know, the one scene that points this out early on is when as a memoir of sorts, she goes to visit her childhood home where she grew up and and what does she do? She's more interested in the guy, the train model train enthusiast who lives there now than she is in in going back to her old bedroom. I think what's the phrase she even talks about it as a trip down memory lane, she says it was a failure. It was a a flop. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and well of course it was because she's more interested in other people than digging into her own history or her own past. Now, of course, we get that because we get to see her through those other people's eyes, even that guy who she's just meeting for the first time. Yes. Because we learned something about her by her curiosity that she expresses over him. Yeah, I have to go back and watch it, and maybe it was something in the translation, but there was something about that moment that almost seemed like she was a little bit reluctant to get drawn into his model train world. It wasn't like she really was so fascinated by it, but she's so naturally curious and so genuinely nice and wanting to show an appreciation for other people and their interests that there was no way she wasn't going to give him her undivided attention. She did stay with him and showed him showing her this great collection. And no matter how it starts, and if there is any reluctance at all, or I'm kind of making that up by the end of it, you can tell that she's genuinely curious about some of the things that he is telling her. 
with this movie, it's going to sound like a little bit of a cop-out, and you can feel free to say that, because there's a part of me that almost feels like this movie defies criticism or defies real critical introspection, because even with all of its pretense and artifice, and it's all over it in the form of various techniques and the fact that she sets up beaches in weird places like on Parisian streets Mm -hmm. and she just does a whole slew of tricks from having a cat portray Chris Marker, an animated cat. It's still so heartwarming and life-affirming and I think ultimately direct in what it's trying to do that to try to decode it in some way or intellectualize it somehow weakens this film. I think that it's just this appreciation for cinema and people more than it is an appreciation of her own cinema and seeing how the past and the present and the future come together here and collide in this movie. It's a visual representation of exactly what cinema actually is, which is a commingling of time and space at its core. That's precisely what cinema is. And she's made a movie that is very much about cinema that doesn't necessarily try to answer the question, what is cinema? But in the process of making it, I think she answers it. Yeah, I mean, the experience of it is peeking into a home movie almost, especially when her family comes into play and you feel like you've just been allowed or let in to sneak a peek at at these lives. Mm -hmm. So it does have that direct emotional content. But also these art installation elements that you're referring to, you get the feeling that they just sort of pop up behind her as she walks through life yeah you know and the, and the one on the beach at the start where she has these assistants bring in maybe a dozen mirrors and place them at different angles so we're getting multiple reflections and the waves that we see in the mirrors and they're rippling a little bit differently it's all lovely stuff but it's also very representative i think of the way she must see the world where life and cinema are always sharing this same space there doesn't seem to be a line for her no. You know, it, it's like they're they're exactly the same thing all the time. Yes. And what we get to experience in a documentary like this is just a little glimpse of what it must be like to see like that. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And you mentioned how rare of an artist she is in terms of making a movie about herself and her career. And yet it doesn't feel at all like a vanity project. She is someone who consistently does look inward and in that as we come to learn from this film, utilizes her own personal life and her work, maybe in ways that we couldn't even be aware of before we saw this movie. But she doesn't actually turn the camera or the attention of the audience inward. The constant in her cinema is other people. As we said, being fascinated by other people's stories. And she becomes just a vehicle for that. She is just the conduit for that. When we talked about the Gleaners and I, I pointed out a scene where I thought, one of the real people in that film almost summed up what being an artist is, where he described needing to pick up something and put it in his space because it just needed to be there. It was an instinctive thing that he couldn't resist making that choice. And I feel that way about Varda. We see that come up in this film so many times where she is compelled to do something because she is compelled. She is an artist. She is thinking about cinema all the time. And so she just makes these choices without necessarily over-intellectualizing them. It's not about that. It is about 
whatever is driving her and interests her in that moment. And there are some wonderful little meditations here, too, of course, on mortality as she's 80 years old. We see her celebrate her 80th birthday in this film that happened in The Gleaners and I. But we get wonderful touches like when she's at a flea market and she's going through movie postcards Mm. where it's all these legends of cinema. And she pulls out an Agnes Varda one and says something along the lines of before we were pieces of cardboard, we were... We were flesh and blood. Yeah. And well, I, I feel like one of Jacques Demy as well. Jacques Demy as well, so, her husband. And I, yeah. I feel like just even though that seems almost a, a vain little moment where she she buys a picture of herself, it's actually meant to underscore what really her quest is ultimately always about, I think, which is affirming life, like using cinema to affirm that even though these memories are going to live on in those images to an extent, the way something is captured, what really matters is the exchanges that occur and those connections that occur between people, sometimes when you're in the process of making a movie. Yeah, and and that also, you know, the comment about those cards deflates the mythical nature of cinema, too, and and brings it back to the real. You know, when you're talking about these impulsive decisions she makes, what is really nice about seeing this film at the end of our marathon is that you get a little insight into how those impulsive decisions led to what we saw on the screen right. in something like La Point Court she spends some time on. How about that great moment where they return to the uh-huh. location of La Point Court and they project onto a screen, right? It's, yeah. it's on this wagon that was it's used on a wagon in the original that they're film. Pushing. And they're pushing it with projection of test footage, it is actually, yeah. down the same alley at night. And it's just, I mean, it's gorgeous, but also just that you would have that impulse to right. even recreate that. And and we see how similar impulses in, you know, the creatures as mentioned here, one sings, the other doesn't. Um, and Vagabond as well. You know, all films we had in the marathon, we get to see how those impulses led to some really amazing stuff in the finished product. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons I was considering what Ebert said and wanted to prompt you with that is because I actually kind of was patting myself on the back a little bit for how we did with this marathon watching this movie. Whether you need to have seen these other films or not to appreciate it, other people can weigh in on as well. But the films that we did watch in this marathon, which were pretty arbitrarily selected. I mean, we try to do our best to cover a whole lot of factors. We're thinking about not only films that people can get their hands on, but films that many consider defining works. But she's got so many films to choose from. It was really hard, and we knew we were leaving out some obvious candidates. And yet, if you watch this movie, the films that got mentioned the most, I felt like were La Pointe Court, Mm -hmm. One Sings, The Other Doesn't, the Creatures, The Gleaners and I, Vagabond, Cleo, of course, from 5 to 7, gets some attention as well. But other than those, which, again, were all part of our marathon, the other ones that I guess I regretted, Documentur, only because she says, and we do see some glimpses of it for sure, but she says it's her favorite film. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. That makes you want to seek that one out. But also, Jacoa Denant, because that is the film about her husband, Jacques Demy, who, of course, made The Umbrellas of Shoreboard. And this is going to come up. I'm going to save it a little bit for our awards. But they had this clear bond and connection, not only through their love and through their children, but through cinema as well. And she made this film in which she got to go back and basically recreate his life 
when he was too weak to do it and recreate his youth growing up. And that's remarkable, as are the scenes later where we see her making another film about him that really is about him and his life as he is close to death. It's some very touching stuff. Yeah. And, you know, he those were in the last months of his life when she was mm-hmm. making that film about his youth. And the moment she gives, again, the impulsive nature here, those intense close-ups of his hair. His hair. Teacher, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's really tough stuff. It is. But also, you know, life-affirming really is this, is a phrase, again, that mm-hmm. uh, that you use that I'd come back to even for those sequences. And it makes you immediately go back to the gleaners and I and the shots of her hands, her hands and yeah. the spots that she's capturing with that digital camera. And we see her doing something similar many years before, of course. I think that film was shot in the 90s. I want to say maybe 1991. You can look it up here as I'm babbling. But that film about his life occurred much before 2000s, The Gleaners and I. And yet she was clearly preoccupied with those same notions of capturing the the body in its form as it ages. Looks like 1991 for yeah. Jacques Denon. So about 10 years before she made The Gleaners and I, again, some real connections there. And there are others too. I just have some random other comments here, Josh, before we get to our awards. The way we see her do an art installation, an actual art installation of widows from the same seaside village and they're all projected their faces on screens and they talk about their lives and how they've been affected with their husband's absences and it made me think of all the images of women that we see at the beginning of one sings the other Mm -hmm. doesn't right and the husband they're capturing the one very different shots very different situations but similar and again Another example of something rooted in her own experience that she turns outward to bring in others. That's really the thing. And again, I I don't have this well articulated, but I just jotted down this idea, getting back to that idea of how instinctual she is as an artist. It just seems with her that cinema truly happens in every corner of the world constantly. It's this living, breathing organism and that she, especially in this film, is creating cinema out of life. And that's it's remarkable. I know some other filmmakers have probably done similar things, but it feels unique to Varda. And another one of those art installations that's so moving late in the film is the one where somehow we've got a house that is basically constructed on film strips. strips, She actually took the creatures, the second film in our marathon, and it was such a bomb. She got all the prints (laughs) of it, basically, and she cut up the film strips and it becomes the actual the texture of the house. It's its remarkable. There's something kind of breathtaking about yeah. looking at a house and a structure that obviously isn't all constructed on that, but it's the overwhelming image of it. If you looked at it from a distance, you would never know. But as you get closer, you get into the details and you see those shots. It's great. And the movie's great. And Varda's great. And we're going to pay a little bit more tribute to her now as we get to the Clio's our best of the Agnes Varda Marathon Awards. We are going to start as we usually do with best supporting performance. And I don't know about you, this was the toughest one for mm-hmm. me. And of course, it it speaks to the kind of films we chose. And I'm sure there are others where there'd be lots of performances. But she has such a unique approach. And she's making these films that are often so focused on on individual characters or individual people. And we meet some great faces along the way, but I don't know that any of them felt worthy of the title of supporting performance. Maybe I'm completely wrong. How did you approach it? it, It's an odd category to apply to these films. I would agree. 
it's almost as if she's too expansive, you mm-hmm. know, and that's it. That's it. she wants to include everyone. Here's another yep. commonality with Jonathan Demi, I think, you know, the more people on screen, the better. Yep. Um, so how do you choose someone who stands out? Uh, my choice isn't the far and away obvious one I could have gone with, but I remember she stuck out to me while watching the creatures and I wanted to return to it. It's Eva Dahlbeck Mm -hmm. as the hotel owner. Okay. Um, I think I like this, especially in contrast to Catherine Deneuve's performance in the creatures, which was very passive and purposefully. So, you know, that's exactly what that character was, was meant to be doing. Um, But here Dahlbeck's independent businesswoman really stood out in contrast. So she's, I just like how she's trying to make it on her own in this situation. I think she inherited the hotel from her, alien older father. She's negotiating different suitors. And there is something in light of that, especially tragic when this mind control, this really weird mind control plot kicks in. And you have this particular character losing her will and her agency. You know, there's something mm-hmm. particularly sad about that. So Dahlbeck, a uh, Swedish actress, she also appeared in Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night. And I just liked her. I liked her spirit here yeah, in the creatures. I do as well. I thought about her, but I'm going to do something that I think Varda herself might appreciate: stretch the definition of performance a little bit. As I pick my winner, and Are you I thought it to about one of the cats. It's a good thought. It's a good thought. But no, I almost gave it to Varda herself in mm. the Gleaners and I, because even though we said it becomes a pseudo memoir. It's about so many different people that she kind of becomes a supporting player in that film. And I was really tempted to go down that path. But the more I thought about it, I stuck with the Gleaners and I. And I just realized how much I was drawn to one particular Gleaner. And he came up during our discussion. If I recall correctly, he is the vegetarian slash magazine street seller slash French instructor. Oh, yeah. The guy who she just sees on the streets of Paris looks like he's pretty well kept together. He looks kind of like a grad student, and we find out later that he has a master's degree. He doesn't look like the other gleaners we've seen out in the fields of rural Paris, and he's picking up food that honestly does look pretty fresh and new. A lot of apples, some parsley at one point he's eating, and she ends up becoming fascinated by him and follows him over five or six days, and he becomes a really interesting character because not only are you watching him articulate his reasons for living this kind of life. Yes, he is out of work at the moment. He's selling magazines and newspapers on the street. That makes him some money. It's it's partly out of the principle of it. It's almost just because it's there and it's good. And he, at one point, is talking about all the different nutrients he gets from the bread and from the vegetables. And Varda's like, isn't it kind of odd that you're thinking about a balanced meal? And he's like, well, I studied biology, so of course I would think about a balanced meal. And if all that wasn't interesting enough, we then get to the next part of the story at night. He goes to the shelter he lives in, and he points out that 50% of the people there are illiterate. They're mostly immigrants from Senegal and Mali, and he teaches them. He gets no compensation for it, but he teaches them French. He teaches them how to read and write, and he's a guy who Varda maybe in her younger days, might have made an entire film about. And I would have watched that movie. So here's here's the thing with Varda and that particular person is 
most documentarians would have got the first two thirds of that. Right. Right. But they wouldn't have had the persistence or the interest or the curiosity to even find out that he was teaching these yeah. night classes as well. But because she has that, we get to learn that much more about him. Yeah. So our Cleo for lead performance, uh, there's no way we're we're splitting on this, are we? It's Sandrine Bonaire. It right? is Sandrine Bonaire Vagabond, from Vagabond, yeah. yeah. I mean, the highest degree of difficulty as well, I think, for an actor. We talked a little bit about this, how this she's the difficult drifter, Mona, of the title. And the audience isn't going to be on her side. No. Naturally. I mean, maybe if maybe if you describe the plot, there's, there's this young woman who's wandering alone. You might feel sympathy for her, but not how... Not how Bonaire plays her. And if anything, she leans directly in to this difficult nature. Doesn't try to court our favor at all. Embraces the standoffishness um, until it becomes this point of fascination for us, almost a point of entry. And then it does become a point of sympathy. So it's like the long way around with this character really because of this performance for me. And we almost don't know until she's gone how much we have come to have sympathy for her, you know, Mm -hmm. because she just keeps us at bay, keeps everyone at bay for so long. And then when she disappears, you really feel that loss. Yeah, I'm with you completely here. I did consider Teresa Leotar, Suzanne from One Sings, The Other Doesn't, and her counterpart, Valerie Mares, who plays Pauline slash Apple. Between the two of them, that's where I was thinking about Yeah, Apple was really where I was leaning because you talk about degree of difficulty, forget the singing and performing part, but... She starts out as a teenager Mm -hmm. in that movie, and it really is just, of course, there's a little bit of makeup and wardrobe that factors into that, but it's mostly in the way she carries herself as an actress that we believe her as a teenager and then see her as someone... Older, she she ages by probably at least what fifteen years, maybe twenty years in that film, and it it feels completely believable. So thought about her, but I'm with you on Bonaire. It's maybe the highest compliment. I can think of for an actor or actress where she's never anything but captivating on screen the way I think only a true performer, someone who's really comfortable on screen, really knows their craft on screen can be. But you could also just as easily believe that Varda somehow found her on the streets, Mm -hmm. roaming these towns, actually scraping by to survive. Which is exactly what you need for this role. You do. So you can't say it's not acting. That would actually be an insult to the performance she's giving, but it is acting without affectation. And that said, it's not at all passive. She is still a character. We talk about agency. She's full of it. So it's really something. And we agree on Sandrine Bonaire as the best lead performance for Vagabond. That brings us to our next category. And we always do our favorite overall scene or moment. And then we also try to identify something that is unique to the marathon, unique to the particular filmmaker or genre or subject that we're covering. And the one we came up with here was our favorite fact meets fiction moment. So much blurring of the lines of reality and fantasy, fiction and nonfiction, documentary and narrative filmmaking in her work. How did you land on one? I wanted to find one in her one of her fiction films because right. I think a lot of this does go on there as well. For sure. And especially in the use of some non-professional actors. So I thought about that for a little bit. But in the end, I went back to the Gleaners and I, and I'm picking that final moment. This is where the museum curators hold up this painting. They bring it outside. It's a 19th century painting, I think, of Gleaners in a field. And 
here's why it's fact meets fiction, because within the frame of a documentary, okay, we have another frame here of a fictional representation of a factual activity. Uh (laughs) So there are just so many. And you know Varda's thinking about all this, right? So many layers at work, yet it's, it's displayed unpretentiously. It's not overly intellectualized. We have this simple elegant composition. I mean, this is a this is a beautiful frame to look at itself, this frame of frames. Um, but it does have these other layers going on. So for me, that was the fact meets fiction. We shot. mentioned it during our review of that movie, but every time there's maybe three or four instances in the film where she took someone like a judge and threw them out into a field, like put them in the setting in which they are talking about. Yes. But of course, in the garb that they would wear in the setting that they're more familiar with and they're more comfortable with. I love those touches. My favorite fact meets fiction moment comes from the beaches of Agnes. And we danced around it a little bit. It's the Jacques Denon sequence. And it's appropriate, I think, perhaps to not just pick a moment utilizing fact within a fictional construct or vice versa, but an actual meditation on utilizing fact within a fictional construct in a movie that is doing that very thing. So there's a real meta layering here going on with my choice and with a lot of her films. I think she says that it might have been a master's proposition. Someone suggested this as she was making the film about her husband's childhood. Someone wondered if you could recreate moments of Demi's life for that 1991 film and discover that she was actually recreating moments from his films as well. Mm -hmm. So here she is staging his childhood. He had already perhaps staged his childhood by re-envisioning actual moments from his life in his narrative films. And we see at one point a scene with a mechanic that she's recreating that he already did in the Umbrellas of Shabor. Yeah, right? it's a great moment. So that's mind-blowing in its own way. And then she reverses it and says, okay, what if we start with the scene from a Demi film? I don't know for sure that it comes from his, his own life, but I think it does. I know that it comes from one of his films. I'm then going to use that as the jumping-off point for a recreation, yeah, which really is what cool. she does. So, yeah, it's so cool. And I think that that sequence, and I would include in that what we've already talked about a little bit, the next film... She shows scenes from closer to his death, documenting his hair, his face. She says, all I could do was stay by his side, be as close to him as possible. As a filmmaker, my only option was to film him in extreme close-up. His skin, his eye, his hair like a landscape, his hands, his spots. I needed to do this. Take these images of him of his very matter. Jacques dying, but Jacques still alive. So the key words there for me, all I could do was stay by his side. As a filmmaker, my only option was to film him. I needed to do this. Again, that that compulsion mm, mm-hmm. towards cinema at all times. Life influencing cinema, cinema influencing life, it's there. It's it's always there. It's inescapable with her. Yeah, if there was ever a time you think, okay, this is where we put the camera away, it might be that, but but no, not for her. Yeah, one bit of feedback I did want to include here before we get to our favorite scene or moment. It comes from Paulo Simoas. In Lisbon, Portugal, he says, I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years, and this is the first time I'm feedbacking. I just want to say that no Agnes Varda marathon should be complete without her first documentary. And I think 
probably doesn't count as a documentary based on the things we've seen about it, but I know where Paolo's going, on her husband from 1991, Jacques Denon. Although very sick, he was still alive when she made it, and to me, the combination of recreation scenes, clips from Demi's movies and interviews is just the perfect measure to document the exuberant love of films Demi has carried all his life. A couple of years later, she did another work on similar lines, Le Universe de Jacques Demi, which is normally taken as the best work she did on her husband. To me, it doesn't beat her first effort, maybe carried by the emotional weight Demi's terminal illness added while she was making the film. For those who love Demi's work and who cannot love Umbrellas, De Moselles, De Rochefort, Room with a View, it is really a feast that, although leaving you a bit sad, never ceases to nourish the emotion of enjoying good cinema. Try to catch this one at the earliest opportunity. So we got some glimpses of it yeah. there, Paolo, in this last film. But I certainly do feel like if we were probably going to truly culminate this, at least one of those two films would be pretty crucial. Best scene, best moment overall from the marathon, Josh. Another hard one to pick. Uh, you know, a lot of times Very hard. these are, you know, I, I know almost when I've seen it, even though there might be more films to come in a marathon. I'm mm-hmm. like, here we go. Uh, but I ended up landing on one that I'm really happy with. I remember it was such a delight when it ended its film, another ending scene here. It's the final one from One Sings, The Other Doesn't, which oh, is this. a great choice. It's a little unusual, right? Because it's. It's this lilting single take, mm-hmm. and for all her inventiveness, I don't know that the camera is often that active in Varda. I think that's fair to say. There's usually more going on within the frame, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but here it's this very lilting single take around a reunion party where the two main characters, Suzanne and Pauline, this is uh, after many years of friendship, they've gathered at this point with various family members, um, children they've had. And this omniscient voiceover tells us, basically does exactly what I usually don't like, tells us what the characters are thinking, yeah. right? Fills us in on their emotional It kind of tells us the states. lesson of the film, yeah, really, too. It's, like, it's, it's didactic, <laughs> you it know, is, when I describe bit. it. But there is something lovely about it. And the word that came to mind while watching that scene is, here's another dummy tie-in, generous. Right. It's just so generous in the way it's Jonathan Demi, not Jacques Demi. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Um, In the way it's letting us know how even these minor characters feel. It's not just Pauline and Suzanne. It's Mm -hmm. how all these people around them are feeling at this moment. So so to those women, to the others in their lives um, and to the lives that they've all led. So it's it's, um, yeah, really sweet. It is really sweet. It's a great moment in that film. And as we learn from watching The Beaches of Agnes, that's her real daughter. That the film closes on and her real son who plays the little boy who's with that musician yeah, that yeah. Apple's group picks up along the way. I didn't realize how much she used her own kids in her work, but that only makes sense. I actually picked a scene as well from One Sings, The Other Doesn't, but it's when we talked about during our discussion, the lunch scene with the women in Amsterdam. It's Mm. where she meets Darius, who becomes the man she loves, the father to her child, the father to her children, ultimately. But the line she says... Officially, it was the day I fell in love with Darius, but what mattered even more was the bond I felt with the women there. Women like me, I still see their eyes. So all these women who are, as I recall, all there to get abortion. So they're all women in need at that point. And she feels a strong bond with them, even as she is discovering the man that she is going to come to love. But it was something about the way the camera just wistfully and gracefully moves across the room as we're hearing that in voiceover, as we are seeing those faces Mm -hmm. that she's talking about that did matter so much to her. And something about that scene, as I said during our review, the 
the way they they felt like ghosts to me. She's she's talking about them as if it happened in the past from a sort of omniscient point of view as a narrator. So we think about them being gone. They're gone from her life. They may even be gone from this world at this point and what they suffered through or didn't suffer through all the other women in history who have potentially suffered the way these women have. It all comes through in that scene and in that little camera movement. So we're up to best picture. We are. Okay. For me, this was a clear one. Yes. I think she has, of the films that I've seen now of hers, she's got at least two masterpieces. One we didn't include because we'd both seen it, Cleo from five Mm -hmm. to seven. And I think Vagabond is in that category as well. I talked about in our review this, the metaphysical power it had for me by its end, where Mona, this drifter, has become this Alhazar Balthazar figure, someone who's opened themselves up to the world and paid the price for it. Beyond that, though, I think this does what the personal Varda documentaries that we've ended with here um, have told us. They've revealed, and this does too, how Varda is a deeply humanist filmmaker, how she's curious about all people. And perhaps most, though, she's curious about those who live on life's edges Mm -hmm. and would otherwise be ignored. So I think maybe even more so than Cleo from 5 to 7, this one is probably – more representative of her as a filmmaker. Yep. You know, I mean, who who needs words like better? But I think it is more representative. And maybe if you are looking for a place to start, mm-hmm. a good one. A great one. And we said as much a few weeks ago when we talked about it. I think that you're right. If you did have to put the M word on her films and talk about masterpieces, I think Vagabond would be number one. I think Cleo from 5 to 7 should be in the conversation. I would put The Gleaners and I close into that conversation. It was the runner-up here for me. But we're on the same page in terms of Vagabond being the richest viewing experience, the most rewarding for me to watch and to consider after the fact. And I do think it is an apotheosis of sorts of her primary preoccupations and her approaches to cinema in terms of the mingling of documentary and narrative filmmaking, the passion for land and landscapes and people and shots that catch your eye but aren't again about bravura camera movements it's just about a curiosity of the person behind the camera being drawn to something that's happening just outside the frame and of course the struggle of women in society which as we just talked about with one sings the other doesn't came up a lot in this marathon so we agree the vagabond is the best picture and we hope that you've enjoyed this trip through the work of agnes varda i've said it a few times i keep thinking josh maybe if i say it enough, it will come true that somehow Agnes Varda will come on this show. It could happen. I mean, She seems like she'd be open to it. She seems like she'd be game for just about anything. Can you imagine like our next rap party, like (laughs) Agnes Varda walks out on stage? I mean... That I can't wait for. We're pulling this off. I don't know how. (laughs) In the meantime, while we try to do that and probably don't pull it off, we can all, of course, follow Agnes Varda on Instagram. Did Did you see that? Did not know this. Just... Out today, coming full circle. Our huh? friends at Mubi tweeted this out. They had a link to the article. Sam retweeted it. Basically said, you know, if now you've got a hole in your heart that needs to be filled because the Varda Marathon is concluding, well, you can follow her on Instagram. Which, oh, man. after seeing the Beaches of Agnes, of course she's on Instagram. Yeah, totally makes and sense. And I can't wait to see what she does with it. I believe it is Agnes Varda official. That's I E L Agnes Varda official is her name, all lowercase, one word, on Instagram. We thank our friends at Mubi for 
presenting this marathon. We thank all of you who followed along. And if you do have any closing thoughts on Varda's work, any of the films that we've discussed or the awards, we would love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.